It's obvious that design is all around us, but how designers think through their work is often a mystery. Yet, understanding that process can fuel our own curiosity and creativity. Adam Fromey hosts Thinking Through Design as a series of in-depth discussions to reveal the designer's mindset and realize its value. I think a good place to start this conversation would be to talk about the role of the designer. So can you give me your definition of what that means? Yeah, so the definition I like to use is from Herbert Simon. It's from his book, The Sciences of the Artificial, which is back in the late 50s, early 60s, I believe. And what he says is, to design is to devise courses of action aimed at changing existing situations into preferred ones. And I like that one because it's about creating better futures, and it's an optimistic act as far as how he's defining design. Now, it's also very general. Yes. Uh, It doesn't get into, uh, you know, the things that we do professionally. Uh, the different design disciplines. Like, for instance, in our department, we have industrial design, the design of products, and and even uh, more so these days, uh, services. Uh, we have uh, interior design, the design of commercial interior spaces in a variety of different ways. And we have visual communication design, the area that I teach in, which is very broad as well as far as the kind of applications involved. Um, and then, you know, you also have architecture and urban planning and landscape architecture. Those are definitely design disciplines, although they're definitely attached to engineering a little bit more so and that kind of thing. Um, so when you talk about the design professions, there's a variety of them out there. Yes. Uh, and we represent some of them in our department. And with this, uh, a lot of the conversation or, or what I'm hearing you say is sort of talking about the artifacts that are produced by the yeah, designers. Right. When we're thinking about a, a team of people working on one of these large projects, whether mm-hmm. it's designing a website or a commercial space, the designer itself, sort of where, where do they sit in that decision-making process? Well, it depends on probably their level of experience. Um, clearly, those who uh, have risen you know, with a lot of experience and are in more maybe manager, management managerial positions have more influence than maybe junior starting designers do. Uh, And it really depends as well on the organization and how they put teams together and who sort of has the leadership power and that sort of thing in teams. But designers definitely play a big role a lot of the time uh, when it comes to this sort of setting. So in that role, how do, how's that taught in the classroom? Yeah, it's difficult to (laughs) teach that to undergraduate students. Absolutely. I think that's kind of obvious. Um, But it's something that we do address when we get into our collaborative studio courses, which uh, happen every spring for the third year and the fourth year students. Um, And by the time they're fourth year and they're doing it for a second time, um, you know, mixed with all the majors and and both third and fourth year level, uh, the fourth year students tend to take on leadership roles at that point because they've been through it before. Uh, and they can help guide and mentor the third-year students a little bit in this kind of collaborative team setting, which is a great experience for everyone. But that's um, about the best we can do in the classroom setting in our studios. Um, certainly, we teach about this in certain courses where we're um, not only having them learn that particular type of design for their discipline, but we're also looking at how is this actually practiced in the field and what should you expect if you're going to be involved in this particular uh, subset of the discipline? What is that going to be like working within that? Um, yeah. So we try to do that as well. Yeah, I, I see it as sort of equal parts, sort of these hard skills, right? The actual craft of making, the technical yeah. components, but then also just as much in the sort of soft skills of, oh, absolutely. of those relationships and how we work in the um, on the team project or on. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we really stress, which you will have recalled, I'm sure, from your undergraduate days, is that presentation of your work is extremely important and you have to get good at it. And it can't be one of those things where you just get up there and mumble something and say, well, you know, I did this. What do you think? You know, you have to be able to take people through your thought process and your rationale for what you've done and why so that they understand it. Um, if not, then, you know, you're just sort of relying on first impressions, which generally are not the best way to judge things when it comes to design. Absolutely. You, you mentioned my undergrad. I was actually 
looking back and we have known each other for over 20 years yeah, at we have. this point. Yeah, right. Um, look, looking back to w- when I started my undergrad here. Um, and, and with that, or at least in that span of 20 years, since that's also my point of reference, how do you see the role of the designer changing in that time span? Um, or well, do you? No, it, it definitely does. There's a lot of things that have happened and technology drives a lot of it. But but before we get into that, I'd like to go back to the first thing about the role of designers a little bit more because yeah. I think it affects what we're going to talk about here. Um, so a lot of what we do is sense-making and bringing order to things, uh, at least in visual communication design, but certainly it's in all the disciplines um, uh, because we're sort of mediating um, people's experiences in the human-made world, if you will, right? You know, whether that's the environment or products or services or communications or whatever. And some people um, have even made the claim that design is maybe like a meta discipline in that it includes almost all disciplines. I don't know that I would go quite that far. That might be overstating it a little bit, but certainly it's an integrative um, discipline where we bring in knowledge from social sciences, business, arts, psychology, all those things into what we do. Um, So that, I think, is an important distinction for us as designers um, because we're a bit more interdisciplinary, possibly, than a lot of other professions are. Would another way uh, of saying that be it's broader than a lot of other disciplines? Because what do you see the intentionality of that like there has to be a purpose to yes that. absolutely um i think it's practical and pragmatic because uh, if you look at what we're doing it's very much a problem solving kind of mindset um, in design and there are plenty of other professions that problem solve as well but i think what designers have more or less gotten to over the decades is that to do it correctly you have to integrate things from other areas you can't rely just on sort of um, normal design knowledge. You have to bring things in from other areas. I mean, you know, the reason that um, user experience design is a rather big deal right now is because um, designers and others have figured out that these techniques that the social sciences uses uh, are very helpful when it comes to developing uh, user experiences through the um, design professions. you know, so to me, that's completely practical. It's like it, would, it wouldn't make sense not to include this, so we include it, right? And we have our own sort of take on it um, that may not be exactly the way social sciences, scientists would do it, but it makes sense in the context of what we're trying to achieve through the design um, um, exercise, if you will, that's happening there. You're talking about being a problem-solving process. Right. And I think probably having those ad- additional insights both in being able to understand what the problem is mm-hmm. by sort of doing the research of going out, talking to people, finding out what where the important bits of information are. So having right. that sort of understanding of where those areas are. Yeah. But then also in the terms of creative problem solving. Yes, exactly. A lot of creativity can come oh, from absolutely. seeing what's happening somewhere else and then being able to sort of reimagine it within the the project itself. Yeah, to me, creativity is not one of those things that's like it's a bolt out of the blue and you suddenly have a new thing. It's usually finding things that haven't been combined uh, together so much that when you do that, you get something good and interesting out of it. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that, you know, really for any field doing something related to creativity, that's kind of the crux of it to a large extent. So, you know, what that also says to me is design is kind of a diverse field as far as the disciplines we draw from and the kind of thinking that we do. But when you also talk about diversity and inclusion and things like that, we have some issues there, as do a lot of fields. Yes. So, um, <laughs> um, expand on that because yeah. you sort of are using diversity in yeah, two different in two ways. ways. Yeah. Sort of a, right. Yeah, we have a diverse sort of way of thinking and applying things from different disciplines. But then when you look at diversity, you know, based on, um, you know, people's racial backgrounds and um, economic backgrounds and things like that, well, we're not doing incredibly the well. The makeup of the profession Yeah, the makeup itself. of the profession itself. It's definitely been recognized as a problem. Yeah. Yes. And there are different groups trying to address it, but it's a difficult problem to, um, to address. You know, it's it could be considered one of those wicked problems, you know, where um, there's really no um, one discipline that can fix it, 
and that it takes a variety of disciplines working together and over the long term. And the problem shifts as you're dealing with it. It's not like it's frozen and you just have to solve this one thing. It continues to change and develop over the time that you're trying to deal with it. Something I know that STEM has been working with for Absolutely. a long time as well yeah. as of trying to be strategic as to the makeup of population. Yeah. So, so that way it can have, I think it does center around this idea of creativity and being able to have people with different backgrounds coming into it. So those experiences can be lent towards the problem solving. Oh, having a diverse group of people in the room is always a good thing. Absolutely. You get these different viewpoints. And, you know, practically with design, you catch things that maybe the group that's been developing this thing, if they're all from a similar background, may not have considered. And it could be problematic, and they're just not realizing it. But somebody who comes in with a different background, a different viewpoint, sees it right away and points it out. And then everybody's like, oh, yeah, of course, we have to deal with that. So, Yes. I'll I'll go back to this idea of of that responsibility of the designer to seek insight. Exactly. And have that sort of moment of clarity to where something that doesn't quite make sense all of a sudden gains that sort of perspective where it's like, oh, it's all laid out in front of you, and it's sort of – it's much easier to connect the dots right, when, right. when you're in that solution forming. Yeah, and insight is a really good and powerful word, I think, when it comes to design. And I always pair it with actionable, actionable insight, because we're always trying to do something with what we've learned yes. and apply it in some way. And, you know, not that a lot of other disciplines don't do that as well, but sometimes what they, that um, process results in is maybe recommendations and a report or something that goes to someone who then is tasked with acting upon it in some way. Designers tend to do the acting upon it with whoever they're working with, clients or whoever, um, user groups, et cetera, to actually try this thing out and see if it's going to work and then adjust it along the way and refine it as necessary. So that sort of human-centered design approach and that interaction with people Uh, is one of the things that, again, is a little different about what we do. Not that others don't do it, but we do it in our own particular way, and it's an important part of doing design. So when we talk about, like, how has the field changed over, say, the last 20, 30 years or whatever, that's definitely one of the things I would point to. Uh, Early on, when design and the design professions were sort of setting themselves up, that was not a big part of it. It was really more about being able to provide services to business that they needed to, you know, create good design. Just executing a yeah, solution. Yeah. And and there was a lot of complaints about design being brought in at the end of any development process of whatever this thing was to make it look pretty and to make it look professional. But not being involved, involved in the beginning where the decision making was happening about, well, what is this thing we're doing? What is it going to be? And why is it important? And what should it do? Designers were kind of left out of that in the in the early days. Is is the sort of change of twenty years ago? We'll say the designer was provided with the insights. They're sort of given yes. here are the five things we need to accomplish right. and the motivation that we're going to provide to you. Mm-hmm. And it's evolved over times to more the designer being empowered to seek out what that insight is. See, find the information that makes most sense to them Mm -hmm. on how they can impact the process. Yeah, absolutely. That's been a big change. And, you know, we have to point to people um, in the discipline that have been working on this approach for a long time, such as Liz Sanders in our department, you know, who worked with uh, an early uh, design firm here in Columbus, Richardson Smith, who was one of the pioneers of setting up this kind of approach. She comes from, you know, the social sciences, and they're like, their thought was, well, let's bring someone in from the social sciences and see how that would work with design. Let's experiment with this and see if that provides better insight. And, of course, it did. And things just kind of blossomed and grew from there. There are others doing it, too. IDEO in San Francisco early on was doing some of the same thing in the uh, late 70s, early 80s as well. Um, But, uh, yeah, I mean, now we have this huge discipline of user experience design and user experience research, which – probably would never have come about had not these early um, sort of efforts into this area had started back then. This idea of teaching students to look for insight or teaching them on how to sort of be active researchers or are active in the process of collecting it and translating that. What does that look like? 
Well, it's difficult to do, yeah. uh, you know, much like some of the other things we've been talking about, especially in an undergraduate program, because there's a lot of skills that have to be learned. Um, and a lot of them are about just, you know, creating professional quality work so you can be hired once you leave our programs and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, we give them enough experience in this to understand how it works and what is involved. There are two research classes, one in the second year, one in the third year, where they work in groups, all three of the majors for that level together. Um, the first one is uh, more about survey and observational research um, as far as how that works in the design process. The second one in the third year is more about um, collaborative, um, you know, designing with people as opposed to designing for people. And then when they're in those collaborative studios, I mentioned before, they applied all of those approaches as necessary for whatever they're working on together. Um, so it gives them enough to sort of understand how this works. And if it's something they're interested in, they can take it further uh, professionally. And we do have, from all three of the majors, a certain percentage that go into design research as opposed to just any um, traditional design practice of either industrial interior or visual communication design. A lot, there's a certain number that will go into user experience research or other kinds of design research um, as their main role. Uh, and it's because they have at least some background in that. And you're referring to design research as sort of working in that sort of problem definition phase. Absolutely. Towards before we're sort of getting, well, earlier we were talking about sort of the physical making of yes, the things. right. So the skill sets look different because they're, they're working more directly with people, right? Yes. As you said. They're Absolutely. Yes. Designing with people instead of for people. Right. Right. I mean, both are valid approaches. Um, it really just depends on the nature of what the design problem is and what's the most appropriate way to do that research and um, what kind of results you'll be able to get from that. And sometimes it's a combination of both. Um, it really just depends on, you know, what makes sense. With, with this evolution of going from designers just focused on the making only to identification and making. Yes. What are other things that have maybe evolved oh. in concert with that? Because oh, yeah. I feel like that would dramatically start to change what designers are looking for on the horizon. Yes. Because they're getting all of this additional information um, that now they want to sort of put into the prod mm -hmm. project. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, one that we can't avoid is technology. Uh, it has totally transformed the fields. Um, you know, when I got out of my undergraduate program in the early 80s, um, we were still be before the digital um, revolution, if you will, because, you know, the first kind of usable Mac for design came out in like 84 or something like that. Um, that, you know, totally changed everything as far as how we practice, as far as from the production standpoint. Um, and it continues to evolve. Um, you know, in the early 90s, websites and things like that weren't much of a thing yet. And then all of a sudden they were huge, you know. Um, so there's always waves of change that technology um, creates. And design just kind of has to go along with it um, because we can't not go along with it. We have to. Yeah. Uh, because it affects the way we produce things and the way we deliver things. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so we have AI right now coming in, and it's upsetting the apple cart, and we'll see what comes out of all that. It looks interesting. I can't uh, confess to have looked into it all that much yet other than sort of seeing things out there. Well, no, I can absolutely relate to this sort of how technology has also sort of pushed this evolution. In my undergrad, we were really anchored in a computer lab oh, yeah. for our making. <laughs> yeah, and, and it happened together in, in that sort of community of, um, in the sea of monitors yeah. uh, locked in a room late at night right. <laughs> pushing, I remember. After, yeah. pushing after studio. <laughs> yeah. And now we're, we've really sort of shifted even away from that with tablets and laptops oh, and, yeah. and the mobility of technology to be able to move where students need to go. Yeah. Um, do you see that or, or sort of? Yes, there's always benefits and there's always negatives with any shift in technology, et cetera. Um, yeah, one of the things we've tried to address is to not lose studio culture, like you described the way it played out in your experience, um, because of the mobility and the fact they can work anywhere. Um, so we definitely try to take as much advantage of class time as we can, and then, you know, sort of ask the students to figure out, you know, if you're working on something 
together in a group or if you're all working on the same problem but approaching it in different ways in your classes, how can you help each other? Because that's one of the benefits of studio culture is that, you know, what students will often say, having gone through a program where that's embedded in it, is that they learn as much from each other as they did from their instructors. Yes, Because they spend so much time together looking at each other's work, critiquing each other's work, helping each other. Um, and that's what is great about studio culture. So it's something we don't want to lose. Yeah, not but, o- but it always gets challenging when the technology changes. So. Not, not only in the sort of competitive nature that most designers have of yeah. trying to outdo right. their peer, but yeah. also being able to sort of have those moments when you're sort of buried in your work and someone walks beside you yeah. and, and sort of makes an observation that and, sort, and of, then, was, right. that sort of, and you're like, oh yeah, I didn't think about that. Okay, yeah, exactly. I better change this. Yeah. So, right. so in in the valuing that time, does that sort of change how studio looks um, yeah. with as far as maybe what the activities are that are happening in studio when you have those moments of yeah. students together, like for my experience it was everyone was at their own station working right. on their own work you'd have moments where you'd get up to get a drink of water and you'd yeah. look over people's shoulder but it wasn't as intentionally collaborative it was just right right a a culture of working near other people yes which is very valuable right there but mm-hmm. also trying to build in um parts of the experience that are collaborative so that students are sort of forced to do what you're talking about um, you know, sort of gently forced to do it, if you will, um, so that it doesn't feel like they're <laughs> being pushed into it unwillingly or something. Uh, but that's part of, yeah, trying to get that culture going. Well, and it sounds with the complexity that you're talking about and having all of these different factors, there might be a, a more room for group work to where oh, yeah. that, that task is being divided out among Team absolutely. members, and so they have, they're forced to work together just because of the nature of the project. Yes, absolutely. And that's what those collaborative studio courses are for, because it's really the dominant way design is practiced in the field now. Um, unless you're working at really small um, firms, you know, like a, just a couple people or something. Um, it's not like the individual designer approach has totally gone away. But once you're operating at a certain um, level of scale, um, at that point, Collaboration and teamwork is what it's really all about. And if you look at a lot of the big design consultancies, they're generally interdisciplinary. There's different kinds of designers and other people from design-related disciplines there, and they're working in teams. And it's not about ownership of the result by any one person. It's really about how does everybody contribute to make this thing a better result. Absolutely. Yeah. So technology has been changing. What else has been changing along the way? Uh, There's also um, kind of a recognition that design has a role to play in creating the greater good within society and that it's not there just to serve business. To me, that is a really important um, sort of uh, thing that's been developing in recent decades, and I'm kind of all for it. I mean, I've done a lot of, you know, work for the for-profit world and all that. No problem doing that. But it seems like if that's all we're doing, we're kind of missing the boat as to what our contributions can be. So for people that aren't familiar with that term, a design for good, yeah, what does that? Well, it means not necessarily just doing things uh, for organizations who are driven by the profit motive, but also those who are driven to provide good services to people, um, you know, to improve sort of how things are going in society. And that's really broad, I know, but that could be a lot of different things. So, um, And design has always played a role there to a certain extent as far as, uh, you know, helping them establish brand identities and how to um, present themselves to their communications and things like that. But it can go broader than that um, because a lot of these, um, you know, non-governmental organizations, social good organizations are trying to solve problems, you know, within the communities. And... You know, uh, one of the things that has been helpful is this sort of um, approach that designers take to problem solving, which is very practical and applied. Uh, That can be brought into what they're doing um, to kind of help them develop what they're developing from a services standpoint. It's it's interesting to hear you pair or sort of thinking about this as, as a timeline, and I'm not sure sort of when Design for Good sort of first emerged uh, onto the scene. Like anything, it starts a little bit. Exactly. And eventually, but, yeah, right. But the idea that you're talking about, the shift for the mm. designer really going to people. 
um, and having this identity of or understanding of who the person is that they're designing for right, right. has to sort of pull into this idea of design for good, whether it is yeah. in sort of right. the public sector or even in the private sector of still sort of acting in a role that is advocating for the end user, right? Exactly. Yes, exactly. And, you know, to me, that's also an ethical issue. Um, you know, as a designer, you have decisions to make about like, okay, if you are designing for the for-profit sector, well, what particular industry is that and what are they doing and what, if any, negative things are they doing when it comes to, you know, sort of society and are you willing to support that by helping them as a designer in your work? Um, you know, you got to make decisions about things like that. You know, where's the line for you as far as what you're willing to do and not willing to do? And, you know, we actually have a course in the visual communication major that I teach that's a seminar course that addresses a lot of these issues. Um, you know, about, um, well, what is designing for social good? What is ethics when it comes to design practice, things like that? Because students need to think about these things and they have to make decisions professionally when they're out there. Well, I'm listening to you. I'm thinking about an early opportunity I had after undergrad of, of working for a large design firm. And when before the interview, I was shadowing some designers there. And at one point in the day, um, the designer looked at me and was just like, you know, we design for alcohol and tobacco. <laughs> that's that's 90% yeah. of our business. Yeah, right, right. Are you comfortable doing that? And look me directly in the eye. And yeah. it, it really was that moment of like, yeah. oh, I, I wasn't thinking about the work. I was just excited for the firm and the culture and, yeah, yeah. you know, some of those sure, things. Sure. And it did give me pause. Of course. Yeah, <laughs> as it should. Yeah. And, and so being able to start to think about the the way the designer's operating, right. uh, the way the role is positioned within an organization, whatever that is, whether mm -hmm. it's a specific design firm or working in-house for a company or, or freelance and on their own, of how, what type of work do they want to produce? Right, right. And, and being able to sort of maybe have the control in deciding some of those things and instead of just sort of being told what to make. Oh yeah, absolutely. Of being right. able to factor in some of this, the, their own motivations, their own decision-making, their own sort of moral compass yeah. into the design process. I can envision that that would be a big struggle for most design positions that are sort of listed onto job postings <laughs> uh, of people that might have a, a strong sort of, position as to who they are as as an individual and being able to find that alignment with, oh, with yeah. the type of job that they're looking for. Absolutely. And, you know, you can point to sort of the history of the professions and some of the clients that well-known designers have worked for. And now with 2020 hindsight, we say, wow, they were working for the oil companies, you know? Yes. And well, we know what the oil companies have done to us, right? Uh, in fact, there's a really well-known firm in New York City that worked for, with mobile for years and years. I'm not going to name them. I don't want to call them <laughs> out. But two really well-known uh, partners in that firm, um, very well-recognized. And a lot of their work for mobile over the years won a lot of awards from design competitions. But, yeah. you know, they were working for the oil industry. It, so I can see how it would be very <laughs> difficult um, to talk about in, in, in a classroom setting when you have young designers that sort of don't know what's out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the sort of balance between sort of who you are as an individual and while that's still forming, being tempted by either the salary or the opportunity that big oil can provide when you're thinking about what that portfolio piece could look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it, oh, for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, and, you know, in this seminar course with the fourth year uh, um, visual communication students, a lot of them say, well, we don't really feel like we have the power to, you know, make these kind of decisions from an ethical standpoint as much as we would like. Because, you know, we're just looking for our first job. We need to get established, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they're absolutely right about that. But these decisions will come up at a certain point. So. Yes. So what, what's your best advice for, for students in that position? Have a ethical compass and stick to it. And yeah. recognize when these issues come up. Mm-hmm. And it, it's Absolutely. not that difficult to do. You have to just remain aware. When when you <laughs> you brought big oil into this, yeah. I, I, that's one of the other things that I think has evolved over time is 
this idea of sustainability. Absolutely. It certainly yeah. pairs with design for good, but it's sort of looking at a different mm -hmm. set of questions that now the designer is facing with whatever the scope of the project is, whether it's this huge national campaign or if it's just designing letterhead for a company. Now sustainability is one of those new sort of categories of questions that the designer has to also answer and be responsible for. Yeah, I mean, we're, as designers, we're wrestling with this. It's, again, another one of these wicked, very complex, shifting problems. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot to consider and a lot to potentially do differently um, if design is serious about playing a role in sustainability. And it seems like increasingly it is. Um, you know, uh, a lot of it comes down to um, material choice, manufacturing process, fabrication process, and then just understanding um, the life cycle of anything that's produced. Um, you know, we have in our sort of society this idea that we throw things away, right? Well, there is no way. They all go somewhere, right? And mostly they go to landfills. Um, and if you look at the statistics um, as far as, you know, how things are produced, by the time somebody buys something and gets it home and hangs on to it for however long before it ends up in a landfill, about 90% of the material that was used to create and process and all that for that particular thing ended up in a landfill almost immediately. Hmm. And then the rest of it ends up there eventually, right? And uh, some of the things that we can do with recycling is really it's not really recycling, it's downcycling, it's just keeping something from getting to the landfill until it does get to the landfill. Slowing down the process. Slowing down the process, like taking those soda bottles and turning them into park benches, all right? And then park benches get turned into something else, et cetera. It's not the circular economy, which is what people are pushing for, which is those materials remain as the same thing over and over again by being recaptured and reprocessed um, and reused. So that you're not doing the downcycling and eventually getting it to a landfill. It should be an infinite loop, if you will, of that material always being used for that purpose. That's what the circular economy is about. Now, that's much easier said than done, right? <laughs> so, With that, it, it seems like there's going to be an inevitable sort of separation within the industry of the technical expertise still needing oh, yeah. for a material. Right. Um, and for being able to advocate how to use it and, and what are the ways, what are the simple things even. And then sort of people having that global perspective of knowing when to ask the question of bringing that expert in. Do you see that sort of stratification or that separation happening? Well, I don't know. I haven't or, really studied it in, from that um, standpoint. But, yeah, I think what you're talking about is probably pretty likely. Uh, because there is a lot of technical um, knowledge here to do this correctly when it comes to materials and, and um, processes and things like that. And that's traditionally been in the realm of engineering, and there are definitely people in engineering working on this sort of thing, especially new materials development and all that. Um, you know, one of the things that we are addicted to is plastics in um, Western society. We have all these problems of ocean plastics, you know, those gyres or whatever they're called in the Pacific and all that. Um, and we have problems with, you know, exporting waste from developed countries to underdeveloped countries who have the intention of maybe recycling it, but yet they don't. And it ends up being dumped in the ocean and all this other kind of thing. So there are big, big problems there. There's no doubt about that. Um, but one of the things that materials scientists are working on are bioplastics, you know, plastics that are produced from, you know, material that comes from nature more directly and that can break down, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so there are technical you know, possible solutions to these things, but we're still a long way off from getting to that point where we've reinvented everything we're using um, and producing to be sustainable. I mean, it's a big, big job, and it's decades off. So, And, and I envision the sort of list of questions that the designer is being charged with asking is, is growing equally, um, which sounds like a, a large part of what there may be current future looks like yes is just knowing what questions to ask and how to get that answer quickly so that the project can keep moving forward yep totally agree finding room for creativity and innovation and all of those things with within that sort of punch list of making sure we're, we're doing the right things and we're making good decisions right. and being informed 
Yeah, so what's happened is the level of complexity has risen dramatically for designers. Um, I can recall, you know, 40 years ago getting out of undergrad, and it was pretty simple what we had to consider. And now we have, you know, <laughs> these things we've been talking about, yeah. right? Human-centered research, designing for social good, sustainability, and all the good things you need to know about being a designer, yes. right? Um, that have been traditional things you've had to know. That's a lot of stuff, right? That is a very complex situation now. I feel a little um, sorry for our students entering this complex world, but this is where we are. So, you know, that's part of it. With, with, with this, and, and sort of why I bring it up, is, is not to sort of um, uh, paint a, a dire picture for our students, but thinking about the future of work, thinking about what, what is being... What are some things that we can anticipate or prepare our students, not just in sort of being aware of these things, but empowering them to sort yeah. of have that sort of active insight in the workplace? Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things we've seen post-COVID now um, is, uh, you know, companies trying to get people back in the workplace as opposed to working remotely. Well, it seems that ship has sailed to a certain extent, right? Um and, uh, yeah, I mean, like any technological change, there's positives and negatives that happen. Uh, the flexibility of being able to work remotely, I'm sure, is wonderful for a lot of people. And actually, professors have been doing this for decades. So, <laughs> yes. you know, we almost all have little home offices and, and work, you know, a certain amount from home because we have to produce certain things and it's easier to do it that way. Um, so, yeah, the rest of uh, society and, and is sort of catching up on the benefits of that. But if you need people working together and collaborating, well, they kind of have to be together sometimes, right, to do that. So how do you still make that happen and still provide this flexibility of remote work? And, you know, there are things like Zoom and Miro and all that that people use, which is very helpful. So, yeah, that's just something that, you know, technology is going to continue to evolve in that way, I'm sure. Um, it's really hard to speculate what it will be like in 20 years or something, but I would hope it develops in a more sort of seamless way where working remotely versus being with someone physically, um, yeah, it becomes more seamless and it's not such a division like it is now. Or being able to at least separate and come together. Yeah, like having the ability to do all those things and do them well, yeah. What other things do you anticipate changing? <laughs> I don't know. That's a really good question. <laughs> um I don't know. Are there things I would like to see? Yeah. Um, I definitely want to see us going down this road with sustainability and this develop into a really big thing. Um, I think it has to. I think we would be doing a disservice to ourselves and to the world by not being involved in that. You know, lots of other fields have to be involved in it, too. But really, any uh, big problem like this um, calls for a transdisciplinary approach where you assemble all the disciplines needed to deal with the problem. Because if you rely on silos, you are putting blinders on and you're only approaching a problem from one particular disciplinary mindset. And a big problem like sustainability, the more the merrier, I think, as far as disciplines who are contributing to it. But design should have a role in that. And mm -hmm. I hope we do and continue and, and develop that further. I would say it's the same thing with, um, you know, affecting society in a positive way with designing for social impact. I hope that's another thing that continues on and only strengthens as well. Because, again, I think it's really important for us to be part of that. And I, I have started to see a, a shift, and I'd, I'd like you to either confirm this or not, of students taking more minors. Oh, and, absolutely. And, yeah. and be, having at least one foot somewhere else so that they can, that bridging yes. of disciplines becomes a little bit more seamless because they have that sort of, secondary skill set. Right. Absolutely. And some things that are driving that, there's a couple. One of them is the new general education uh, system that's come in for the undergrads, where they have a little less um, credit hours to take based on the old one, which was a little bit more. So that gives them a little more flexibility to do minors, which is great. And as well, there's more and more credits coming in from high school that um, are applied to the general education, so they don't have to take quite so many of those courses here. So that also opens up for minors and things like that as well. And that's really positive, I think, as far as for the students. And, yeah, I mean, we have students doing minors in all kinds of things, which is great. One of the things we did when we introduced the uh, curriculum um, revised for the new general education was to build an art history minor and for all the majors. Because for our accreditation, they have to take so much art history anyway 
It was really just adding one more course and they have a minor. So we mm. just built that in. Like, you have to take this many credits in our history. And by the way, you will have a minor in that when you complete the program. Um, but yeah, there's room for additional minors on top of that. Sometimes students can even do two, depending on how their credit hours work out. And looking at this from outside the Department of Design, we right. have a design thinking minor for yes. students coming from other ways. Because this bridging needs to happen from two directions. Absolutely, yes. Um, for students or, or for people, individuals, listeners that are interested in moving into design mm -hmm. to be a part of these sort of transdisciplinary teams, do you have any advice or recommendations or, or what's your perspective on how they can sort of lean further into design? Yes, I think doing something like you're describing with our design thinking minor is definitely a very good step. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about learning uh, about what a designing mindset is and how that mindset can play out in a lot of different ways based on the discipline that you're coming from. As well, if you're going to be collaborating with a variety of disciplines, including designers, does that design problem-solving mindset, that um, idea of you know, connecting to people, trying things out, testing them, refining them in an iterative process, et cetera. Um, how can that be something that you also embrace, even if you're not a designer? And that um, if you're on teams with people where that approach is being taken, can you contribute to it well because you have a good understanding of it? I think that's really important for a lot of disciplines. Allowing it to still be design-led, whether you come from design or not, but being able to understand that what the value is of being able to address some of the complexity that a right. design-led project has. Exactly. You know, this also, you know, points to this sort of short history of design thinking in the business professions and how that's kind of played out over the last 15, 20 years, whatever it's been. Um, and I've been critical of that because it seemed like they were, in a lot of cases, uh, using it in somewhat of a superficial fashion. They weren't really embracing sort of the holistic approach that it could take. Uh, and it became, in the business press especially, like, hey, design thinking is the big thing. And then, yes. oh, design thinking is now not the big thing anymore, you know. Um, so, yeah, that was a little frustrating to watch, I thought. It, I think it devalued things to a certain extent. But what's also been very positive is a lot of other professions have embraced this in a better way and sort of understand what we've just been talking about, about how it can be used as a collaborative um, sort of tool and a mindset and a way to lead something in a problem-solving uh, setting. Absolutely. I have one last question, but before I ask that, is there anything else you'd like to add to this conversation? I think it's really interesting of how designers have, what their, where their position is now, yeah. especially as they enter the workforce of of the perspective that, that they're coming into this with as being very different from what we've previously taught. It's been a slow change. Yeah. It's not an instant change. Right, right. And, and being able to sort of juggle all these balls and, and being able to have the understanding to sort of not just sort of look for insight, but being able to value it mm -hmm. and, and knowing what to incorporate into yeah. the decision-making project for or process for their specific project or not, and, and filtering that and moderating those sort of competing needs of the client versus maybe sustainability or, yeah, right. you know, aspirational goals. Yeah. Is there anything else that you see as important to that conversation? Uh, not anything obvious at the moment because it seems like that's plenty, right? <laughs> <laughs> but there will be things. And that's the one thing I would say as far as um, – having a designer mindset is just realize that change is always happening and it is always going to affect what you're doing. Uh, you should never have the attitude as I've learned as much as I can learn and I don't need to learn anything else. And I can sort of freeze my skill set and just do this for the rest of my time in practice. That is not a practical way to look at this situation we're in. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and even if you just look at technology and software, you have to continuously learn that. Um, and it shouldn't be one of those things where you feel it's somebody's job to teach you that. You, as a designer, need to realize you have to keep learning these things. Having that motivation to yeah. be able to find the answer quickly so yeah. we can keep moving. And, and, yeah, and that's a good way of looking at it because it's not like you need to learn everything about something. You just need to learn enough about it to 
um, do what you want to do and move things along in the process of what you're doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, you may keep coming back to that technology and learning different things each time and eventually have a pretty solid mastery of most of it, and that's great. But it's not like you need that all at once. You mm. can develop that over time. Uh, and it's really important to realize that's part of what you have to do. And it's one of the things we try to teach the students, too, is like when we're doing a particular project, like, okay, this is the thing you need to know in this software to do this. We're not going to teach you everything about the software because then we would just be teaching you software. Exactly. And, and we're not doing that. Different problem right? altogether. That's a different thing. Uh, and there are some programs that are like that. Like they're technically owned and they teach software as the main thing. And these students leave with really good technical skills. But they're also technical skills frozen in that particular moment of time, uh, which is fine because it makes them employable. Uh, but our students are taught, you know, sort of bigger issue kind of things. And we feel that serves them better in the long term as far as their careers go. And this is one of those things, just realizing learning never stops and it's something you have to continuously do. So, you know, one of the things I often say to our seniors in the visual communication major when they're getting ready to graduate is like, congratulations, your learning has just started. So Yes, there, there's certainly more. Um, and I appreciate that even that, that was part of the mantra mm -hmm. has been throughout the program of we don't teach software. Yeah. Because you have to know why you need to use that software first. You yeah. need to know what you need to do. Right. And then you find whatever tool, whether it's software or physical tool. Exactly. That can accomplish that task and to knowing that the, the next task has become much more uh, helping in that decision making. And, and so a lot of these big ideas that we've been talking about seemingly could slow down the process and designers work on very tight timelines. Yeah. And, the timeline and, thing is an issue. Yes. So being right. able, being able to move quickly between that sort of macro view mm -hmm. um, down to the micro view of, yeah. of specifically what do you need to answer so you can jump back to that macro view again, understand where the direction is, what are you aiming towards, and then zip to the micro, yes. solve the problem, go back up, and, and sort of being able to jump between those. What you're talking about there is what they call the T-shaped um, person, right, who has yes. a broad understanding of a lot of things and then a particular expertise that's the narrow sort of bottom part of the T. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's an important thing and uh, definitely something designers need to develop. So when you're forming those teams, having people with different verticals yes, of exactly. that T-shape so you can assign the task so that way you don't get tripped up. Yeah, and that's part of the collaborative process, absolutely. Because there's always a point where something has to be implemented and developed and all that. And, yeah, at that point you want to rely on people that have those particular types of expertise to do those particular things. Okay. And they're all informed by everything they've done together, and they're all interpreting it. And it's all being coordinated, but you shouldn't ask somebody with the wrong kind of expertise to, to address that particular problem. To do the problem. next task. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Okay. Final question. Um, what is one step people can take today to start thinking through design? Yeah. I mean, this is similar to what we're talking about with design thinking, I think, and the mindset of design. And that, to me, is what this really is all about. Um, you know, there's a, I think it's at Stanford, a really popular class called Designing Your Life, mm. which comes out of their design thinking sort of offerings. And, um, you know, they're one of the sort of inventors of the term design thinking and all that. Uh, and it's really about using the design problem solving mindset for pretty much anything if it applies to it. And one of those would be like, okay, uh, and, and, you know, there's a certain amount of envisioning that goes into that, too. You know, when you're talking about the future and being optimistic and all that, uh, well, what do you want your life to be? And, you know, what are the things that are important to you? And how do you have to navigate your career to get to that so mm. that you are happy with what you're doing, right? Looking um, at your, the career in, in terms of who you are versus sort of the position that you want to do. Exactly, right. So you're sort of looking at it from more of a macro kind of view and what are the important things you want to address and then that leads you hopefully to the kind of positions and places you might want to work and how you might want to um, sort of structure your life and your contributions based on what's important to you so really anybody can apply that and that's why that's a popular course I think um, is because you know whether you're an engineer or a business person or whatever 
you can stand to think that way and to figure these things out through that lens, that mindset. And, you know, it can be applied in pretty much anything. Um, that's kind of the beauty of this problem-solving approach is that it's a somewhat unlimited as to how you apply it. Yeah, and, and I think an important thing to include in that is that it is iterative. Yes. And so as we were, <laughs> we're taking those intentional moments to think about it, with the acknowledgement that that will change over time. Absolutely. Um, but we have to sort of set course towards something. And that's right. something that's really important in the, the design process is we have a direction in mind. That's what we're aiming for. But we know that's not going to be our destination. Right. Because right. we're going to pivot along the way as new information comes along or new insights are discovered or yeah. new things up, appear within our our personal life right, that might sort of change what we want out of life. Yeah, absolutely. That's extremely true, and that's really important to note. And really, it's also important to understand that that's the way the sciences work, too. They are very uncomfortable making predictions about things. Like, you know, some will say, well, what's going to happen with global warming? Well, who the heck knows? There's so many variables. So what science will give you is like, well, here's what we know now, and here's what conclusions we can make from that. But this is going to change as we continue to study it, and some of the things we think now may prove to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's the process, right? And yep. design, you know, when you look at it this way, through this lens of uh, a designer mindset and what you're describing is an iterative process, well, that's what's built into it. I mean, that's part of it. Excellent. That's a good answer um, <laughs> to, to my question. Um, so with that, I want to thank um, our guests for being here. Um, I also want to thank our listeners. Um, I absolutely appreciate your attention. Um, and I hope that this episode provides you with something to consider. Um, so this has been Thinking Through Design. Thinking Through Design is produced by Adam Fromey and recorded in sunny Columbus, Ohio, at the College of Arts and Sciences Digital Media Studio in Haggerty Hall on the campus of The Ohio State University. Music is Relax Part One by the illustrious Paul Nini. I'm Ava Dale.